Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes? and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Jamaica, plus one, eight, seven, six. Hello. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, this is Andy. Okay. Lily. Uh, you ready for interview? Are you ready for for Lee? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Hold, on. Hold, on. hold on. That is a recording of me being put on hold with Jamaica. Waiting to speak to his high holiness, Mr. Lee Scratch Perry. For those of you who don't recognize that name, Lee Scratch Perry is without a doubt one of the most important music producers of all time I mean his early single People Funny Boy is the line that marks the change and the evolution from ska and rocksteady to create a whole new genre the genre that would launch a thousand ships reggae I mean one could say and many people do that he created reggae don't have me over that But he didn't just invent reggae. He produced some of the greatest artists in reggae. Helped people like Junior Mervin, Toots and the Maytals, the Congos, of course, Bob Marley and the Whalers. He helped them develop their sound. But then after that, people started to steal the sound he had helped them create. And he got tired of that, so he invented another genre of music. Dub. Sort of a spaced out, reverb heavy, delayed, psychedelic offshoot of reggae music. The techniques he created to achieve these signature sounds, these reverbs, these delays, the concept of using the studio as an instrument, that's influenced and shaped every genre of music ever since. I'm not exaggerating. Every single genre of recorded music has learned something from this crazy old Jamaican guy. Hello, man. Hey, Mr. Perry, how are you? He's also notoriously eccentric. And now at 83 years old, still making music, mind you, but perhaps more eccentric than ever. Man, I'm okay. You okay? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm here in Brooklyn, New York. It's a little cold, but I'm good. How are you? How's Jamaica? Make it uh, 
an out of view. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure I was talking to this music legend while he was sitting naked in his house in the Grill Jamaica. I mean, it was a Friday night. Uh, for Mr. Perry, reggae and dub music is holy music. As pure as any hymn you'd hear on Sunday. And for a lot of musicians, Lee Scratch Perry is a holy figure. The high priest of producers. The god of the delay pedal. And nobody felt stronger about this than The Clash. So we want to have lightning flash, something like that. Is we about to talk about lightning flash, lightning uh, the flash? The Clash, The Clash, the punk oh, band, The, the Clash. Clash. Yeah. And though they only ever collaborated on one song together, Complete Control, a song that's not even on London Calling, make no mistake, there's no London Calling without Lee Scratch Perry. Because up until London Calling, The Clash were just a great punk band with a lot of big ideas and a really diverse taste in music. And sure, they dipped their toes into other genres before then, covering Police and Thieves by Junior Merman, I Fought the Law by Sonny Curtis. But it's with London Calling that The Clash start to really draw influence from all over, and especially from the work of Lee Scratch Perry. And that is when they become something greater than themselves. They, they were coming from the house of Flash. So the house of Clash is the house of God. You, you, uh, you said the Clash is the house of God. From the house of God. Do you think the Clash, you say your music is holy music. Does the Clash make holy music? Right, definitely. The, the Clash make holy music in Lee Scratch Perry. From the house from the house of thunder and lightning. And so that is what we're here to cover in the sixth season of the Opus, Holy Music. The most sacred album from the most sainted of bands, The Clash. And their 1979 genre-bending punk rock masterpiece, London Calling. This one is a big one for me. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell. Uh, I've probably listened to The Clash more than any other band. I've certainly listened to them longer than any other band. You know, I, I think I first heard them when I was maybe eight or nine. You know, because I was lucky enough to have a cool older brother. By the way, shout out to cool older brothers and sisters. I mean, where would music be without you? And I've been listening to this band and this album, London Calling, Ever since then, you know, no one is casual about The Clash. And what Lee Scratch Perry said in the intro is spot on. They do make holy music. They don't make albums that people just listen to. They make albums people worship. What is it about certain bands, certain musicians that just radiate that sacred something that just turns all their fans into zealots? There are lots of great bands out there. There are lots of bands that people love, but then there's that other category of bands that people venerate. It has to be more than just the music. I mean, you can get people to wander in your church with a good song, but you're going to need more than that to start a religion. So what is it about this band 
that makes people deify them. I mean, even the holiest of holies, Lee Scratch Perry, calls them holy. You know, you know what it was about the Clash? Is you could tell they loved records. <laughs> this is Joseph Patel. He's had a pretty fascinating career arc. He grew up in the Bay Area. was one of the guys that started this fantastic underground rap label called Soul Sides. Uh, they put out the first DJ Shadow releases, a lot of other legendary uh, California hip-hop. And after that, he went on to write and direct and produce films, videos, and documentaries for MTV, Vice, tons of other places. He's a real jack-of-all-trades and a huge Clash fan. You know, you could tell they loved records. You could tell they, <laughs> tell they loved record stores and, and, and loved record shopping. I, I heard so much in there, New Waves, Dub Reggae, obviously, Rockabilly, Classic Rock. Like, it just, there was so much in there where it was just like, oh, this is really, this is really cool. And so then I sort of dove into the politics of the Clash a little bit more intensely. And I was just like, oh, okay, like, this is fight music. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I understood it at sort of a deeper level a few years later when I was in college and sort of going through this maturation of my own political being and, and, and my political worldview, music was sort of a gateway to everything else for me. Music shaped my worldview and, and the clash is a perfect example of how that could happen, right? From the artwork to the music, to the lyrics, to the politics, to the interviews, like everything that this one band did shaped a lot of my worldview. I think that's one of the things that makes them so important, but also so exciting uh, to listen to even now. Quote, Joseph really sums up the journey a lot of fans go on when they first hear The Clash. I know I did. I heard it over and over again while I interviewed people for this season. You, you hear The Clash for the first time, and the music awakens something in you. I mean, London Calling is such a wildly diverse record. It pulls from all these genres, from all of these places around the world. And like Joseph said, it is clearly music made by people who love records. But then there's this second wave that comes, sometimes years later, where you actually understand what they're talking about, and then you really hear it for the first time. And a song like Guns of Brixton becomes more than a dub song, and a song like Clampdown becomes more than a punk song. And you learn that Spanish Bombs isn't just this beautiful rock song about Spain, and Joe Strummer's howl on London Calling isn't just the cool noise that rock stars do, it is a fucking battle cry. just making music for audiences to listen to and buy. It wasn't just something to consume. It was, and still is, 
much more than that. Completely, completely. And they, they, they demonstrated, and the type of punk fans that I love and respect, like they, they were in line with, they demonstrated that it wasn't about the sound. It was about the ethos behind it and your intention behind what you were doing. This is Laura Jane Grace. She's the lead singer of the band Against Me. Now, I may be biased as a Floridian and a fan, but Against Me is perhaps one of, if not, the greatest living punk band. A band that's not just punk in sound and style, but they really live it. They are punk. Period. I think it's probably in a couple documentaries on them. There's footage that was one of their early learning lessons for me and something that I took a lot from was footage of them playing a show somewhere or another and sneaking fans in through the dressing room window. And that was something that like I saw and I was like, that's how you do it. You know, and when we first started touring, I'm sure much to the annoyance of a lot of the bands that were taking us out, like I would do that. I would go and I would sneak fans in through the back door. I'd sneak them in through windows. It was like an adversarial against the promoter type relationship almost in that way. You're trying to like, you're trying to get bodies in there. You're trying to make it about the show. And and that's obviously against like the the money-making capitalistic aspect of it. You hear how people are talking about this band. I mean, you hear how I'm talking about this band. People don't just say they like The Clash. I mean, Joseph Patel, Laura Jane Grace, me, we all say we're shaped by The Clash. I mean, hell. Bob Marley was in London with Lee Scratch Perry, working on the Exodus album. Someone played in The Clash's cover of the song Police and Thieves. They were both so moved by the way these white boys from Britain, these punks, covered this legendary reggae song by Junior Mervyn that they made a song called Punky Reggae Party in response. Bob Marley name drops the clash in that song. Bob goddamn Marley was shaped by the clash. I mean, Lee Perry, Lee Perry's original recording studio, the Black Ark, was said to be decorated with photos of the artists who recorded there and the artists that influenced the work that happened there. And you got to remember, the Black Ark was for reggae music, a temple, a holy place. For Perry, it was a living thing. And it is said that the only white artist who ever hung on the walls of the Black Ark was the clash. This isn't how people normally behave with most bands. Even the best bands. I mean, everybody loves the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but people don't call them holy. Look, and I'm not saying The Clash are better or more important band than the Beatles and the Stones, because that is a stupid conversation to have. But think about it. John Lennon was certainly beatified in his solo work and canonized in his death, but as a band, they were a different thing. I'm sure there's people out there who were shaped by the Rolling Stones and call them holy, and I'm sure most of them are dead or in rehab. I mean, The Clash just had a different set of goals from the start, and they were ambitious as hell. You know, the thing that was cool about The Clash is that they had some political songs, and they just had some fun songs, and there was room for both. This is Danita Sparks, singer, guitarist, and one of the founding members of the legendary grunge punk band L7. She's a fountain of musical knowledge and experience, a delight to talk to, and just a goddamn force of nature. And there was room for dancing and fighting. I like that. You listen to London Calling and every song flows into the next. And I like that there's, there's room for politics and there's room for non-politics in rock and roll, in punk rock, and they're both valid. And, you know, they're both cool. And, and Clash was successful at both. They had some playfulness on this record and they had some anger on this record. 
Yeah, and they have tenderness on this record, too. Tenderness is important, people. So, like, if you're a band that can pull off all that, well, then, you know, that's, that's pretty fucking amazing. And that's The Clash. I think what Danita is saying there is really true about The Clash. It's at the core of what sets London Calling up on that pedestal. You know, it makes me think about this great Albert Camus quote that you've probably seen before written in a dumb font on someone's Instagram page, but that doesn't make it any less valid. But the quote is, The only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. And that's what this album feels like to me. Lennon Calling is not simply a punk album that beats on its chest and lashes itself to the ramparts. It's not a rock record that swaggers down the highway in a brand new Cadillac, and it's not some collection of world music that's hand-rolling its own cigarettes and waving its passport full of stamps in your face. It doesn't need to be any of that. It doesn't need to be one thing because its very existence as this wildly diverse collection of songs is an act of rebellion. Look, they could have succumbed to the pressures of their fans and stayed punk forever like their first record. Live like that till the end. Or they could have chased the promises of their label, pumped up their sound even more after the second record, and tried to match the big arena bands of the day and live like kings. Instead, they did the most punk thing they could do. They rebelled against all of that, trusted their gut, stuck to their principles, and made the record they wanted to make. And it was London Calling. And they were able to do that, to incorporate great punk songs and dub and reggae and ska and jazz and a huge rock radio hit like Train in Vain. Because for as serious as they were about their politics and their principles, they were just as serious about their music. Punk rock is presented to you with this cliche of like, all you need is three chords and the truth. We're back with Laura Jane Grace from Against Me. You don't need to know how to play. You just fucking bang on your instrument and you're fucking punk. And that's more the Sex Pistols. That's Sid Vicious. You know, do a bunch of fucking heroin, fuck off, and don't really learn how to play your instrument. (laughs) And the Clash, like, (laughs) the Clash dispel that. But they do it not in a way of like, this is over technical and you're never going to get it. But there's actual musicianship present. They play their instruments well. The songs are really well put together. The parts are really well thought out. But again, not overly technical, but you have to apply yourself to learn how to play a Clash song well. Okay, so name a song that is better to dance to at like one o'clock in the morning at an 80s night in a bar when you're like 20 years old then train in vain suck that song comes on and you're just like hell yeah it is such a solid groove and such a like oh it's like the way the bass swoops in and just like hits you right you know
stories of the Clash's writing sessions for London Calling are legendary. They found this space behind a chop shop in London, turned it into their practice space. They'd start each session by playing soccer in a vacant lot till they collapsed, and then they would get up, go in, and start to work. No friends were allowed to hang out. No parties were had. They just worked. And up until that point, you know, they were always seen as just a punk band. They were cast in with the Sex Pistols approach that Laura Jane was talking about. And even their label didn't really understand the talent that they had. But as we've learned, the Clash had a greater vision. And to help execute that vision, they brought in a drunken maniac named Guy Stevens to produce the record. Guy Stevens, he, I mean, he was a madman in the studio. This is Dan Riley, a freelance journalist and editor who writes for Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, Vulture, Billboard, Spin Magazine, everything. Trying to smash these plastic chairs that were indestructible, uh, just swinging this ladder around while our guys are recording. Like, you know, like they had to duck and dive out of the way of him just causing mayhem. Like, he was all about creating a vibe in there as opposed to getting things exact and they loved that it really encouraged them to get out of their comfort zone because they were never comfortable around him i think it was mick who said something about all this chaos just flows around guy stevens and it's all just channeled into the music which comes out perfect that's where it made sense for him when they did brand new cadillac that was a song that they would just do to warm up you know it was just one of their like soundtrack basic songs so they record it just to get all the levels right and everything. And he just starts yelling, that's a take, that's a take, like, we got it. Topper's like, like what, you know, what are you talking about, man? Like, that's sped up, the tempo's totally off. And he goes, all rock and roll speeds up. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it, that's what made the album. He told them, you know, there's two Phil Spectres in this world. And I'm one of them. <laughs> For as crazy as Guy Stevens was, he was exactly what they needed to make this huge leap in their work. London Calling wouldn't be possible without him. Their first record, the self-titled record, was this raw, DIY, classic punk record, which totally shook up the world and was also pretty sloppy. The second album, Give Him Enough Rope, the label brought in this big-time American producer, Sandy Perlman, to polish up their sound and get them ready for American radio. But for London Calling, they'd grown too much as a band in two years to go back to the sound of their first record. And nothing about their politics, their principles, and their current tenuous relationship with their label had them repeating the overproduced sound of the second record. So somehow, Guy Stevens was exactly what they needed. He was a connoisseur of a lot of great American bands, and then later a lot of great British bands. And I think he saw them as really talented musicians, which... I think a lot of people probably hadn't seen yet. You know, they they knew that they could play punk really well and they could be tamed in a studio by a producer like Sandy Perlman, but they were never left up to their own devices like this. And he figured that they needed the atmosphere and the space to experiment and that encouragement to believe in themselves as musicians and not just people who were there to put out a product. 
Guy Stevens saw a greater voice in Joe Strummer, pushed him out of his unintelligible, guttural growl that he had on the first records, encouraged him to really sing. Topper was finally given the gear and the space to shine as a drummer and a percussionist, and without that, you don't get that quintessential drum break at the beginning of Train in Vain, and you don't get all of the wild percussion sounds and drum patterns that are scattered throughout the entirety of the album. And it's in this space that Guy Stevens set up that Mick Jones begins to experiment with the production recording techniques that he's learned from people like Lee Perry. Wild delays, layers of vocals and pianos, Velcro ripping at the beginning of Guns of Brixton, stuff that becomes the signature of his solo work much later with Big Audio Dynamite. And then you have Paul Simonon finally coming into his own on bass. He felt that he could actually contribute a bit more, and that's where you get Guns of Brixton. I think they said that he just kept going over and over and over it again. Like, and they would be like, all right, are we ready to record Paul's song yet? And he'd be like, nope, no. <laughs> and he would just sit there practicing the bass line, even though, you know, it doesn't sound that hard. You know, he wanted to nail it. And, uh, and I know that he didn't even really want to sing on it. And they just kept saying, no, no, it has to be you. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not a singer. And then finally they pushed him into doing it. And it's now one of their best songs. It's not just one of their best songs. It's a real defining moment for them as a band. The dubby bass line, the reggae drums, mixed with the trippy layers, the sound effects, and vocals, and delay, they're all pages taken right out of the Lee Scratch Perry Bible. This is The Clash really wearing their influences on their sleeve. But they aren't just making a punk version of a reggae song or a punk version of a country song. They're learning from the music they love, from the culture around them, from the struggles they recognize, and they're applying it all to their own world, to their own style, and they're making something totally new. On the first two albums, The Clash really weren't ready for the world. But now, on their third album, London Calling, the world better get ready for The Clash. <laughs> but we'll get into that next week. We dig deeper into the music that influenced London Calling, all of the genres that they managed to cram into this album, and what that did to redefine punk forever, not just as a type of music, but as a quintessential part of world culture and politics. I'd like to thank my guests, filmmaker Joseph Patel, writer Dan Riley, Laura Jane Grace from Against Me, Danita Sparks from L7, and of course, the Most High, His Holiness himself, Lee Scratch Perry. Big shout out to the homies Sapyao and Eunice for their song Keep On at the beginning of the show. Hell, you guys a big one. Over a consequence, they're giving away a fantastic London Calling prize bundle. You can win a ton of great stuff, plus this fantastic London Calling scrapbook that just came out. I got an advanced copy, and it's actually really cool. There's no text. It's just newspaper clippings, notes, photos, handwritten lyrics, even a scorecard for one of their pre-recording soccer matches. Head on over to consequencesound.net and search for The Clash and enter. If you haven't ever listened to London Calling, uh, set some time aside. 
put some headphones on and you might want to keep Wikipedia open so you can get all the references. It's a pretty heady record at times. But uh, like Danita Sparks said, still fun as hell to dance to. If you like what you hear from me, please like, subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends. Word of mouth is still king in these podcast streets. Also, if you haven't, go back and check out the previous seasons I've done. Willie Nelson's Red-Headed Stranger, Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz. Even if you're not a fan of their work, listen to those podcasts. I think I can change that. Well, that's all for now. Till next week, for Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found.